in the 2020s, neither party is what it used to be. What is it about the Democrats over the last 200 years that have caused them to win so much? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When the Democratic Party began some 200 years ago, the total population of the United States was around 10 million. Today, it's around 330 million. In the 19th century, the universe of voting blocks, which had given the party victories, ranged from determined white supremacists in the South, to business interests in the coast, farmers in the Midwest, and the working class, including immigrants, and of course, the urban machines. In the 1990s, when I was state Senate majority leader in New Hampshire, getting agreement among just 13 of us Democrats was like, as they say, herding cats. So given the massive scope of America's voting population today, it's kind of amazing that, as Michael Kazin's new book brings to light, we actually won most of the elections since the early 19th century. Well, here we are in 2022, and confidence among Democrats is not exactly there we feel headed nervously into the midterms and then the presidentials. Assuming we would like to win again, a book titled What It Took to Win by highly lauded author Michael Kazin is exceptionally relevant. Michael Kazin is our guest today. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me again, Bert. Michael Kazin is professor of history at Georgetown University and emeritus <laughs> co-editor of Dissent Magazine. He's also written... Barons of Labor, the San Francisco Building Trades and Union Power in the Progressive Era, The Populist Persuasion in American History, America Divided, The Civil War in the 1960s, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan, who does figure in this book. Also, America's Dream American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation. I've read many of these books, and as regular listeners know all too well, I am obsessed with the First World War. And in that vein, Kazin's book, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918, is absolutely vital to any American interested in our role in the Great War. Not nearly enough people know that there was a powerful and pervasive resistance to our entry into that mad catastrophe. Yeah, well, that's then, this is now. Today, I'm pleased to discuss his new book, What It Took to Win, a history of the Democratic Party. It's put out by Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And some on the right say they are the party of Lincoln, that if you want to find machine corruption and racism, well, then the Democrats are your party. Obviously, that was then, and this is now. Your book, as real history, does not spare the party you and I belong to. All along, the party has needed to win elections, and that means majority support. And among the various pushes and pulls along the way, did you find a common thread that ties it all together, that explains what it took to win and may still take? Yes, I did. Um, though obviously the 
Uh, there's been many changes in the coalitions, in the ideology uh, of the party. Um, and, uh, you know, the party is, like all uh, institutions of politics, cannot make its own history. It has to work, you know, within the uh, the history that's being made, the context of various kinds, social, and political, and economic, uh, that are um, what's going on at the time. But I was actually surprised to find that I think there is a uh, continuous um, theme, um, you might even say vision, that Democrats from the beginning of the party as a mass institution in the 1820s under Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson, up until Biden today, uh, 200 years later, um, a common rhetoric, I, I should say, a common uh, aspiration. And that's something I call uh, moral capitalism. That's a term I borrow from a good friend of mine, Liz uh, Cohen, who teaches history at Harvard, who wrote a great book called Making a New Deal, about how workers of various um, ethnic and racial backgrounds uh, all became Democrats in the 1930s when they had not been Democrats before. And what I mean by moral capitalism is a rather abstract term, but uh, it's Democrats articulating an egalitarian economic vision, uh, an economy that um, will provide opportunities for working people uh, uh, to stay working people, not to have to become business people, uh, mm -hmm. a decent life for them. Now, the problem, of course, with looking over two centuries is this vision was applied um, only to white people by Democrats, mm -hmm. uh, with very few exceptions uh, until the 1930s. And, of course, uh, only to men um, until uh, there was women's suffrage in most parts of the country. And also, I think there were different ways to be a moral capitalist. That is, in the 19th century, for the most part, Democrats were anti-monopolists. They're opposed to Wall Street. They're opposed to the big industrial businesses that were um, arising in, in America. Um, they were for small business. They were for um, working people uh, having cooperative enterprises, for example. Uh, but they were not focused on uh, unions, on wage earners, on uh, programs like Social Security and Medicare, uh, the GI Bill, which, of course, uh, we now take for granted as bills which help uh, ordinary people um, of all races. So uh, that's an important change from sort of a focus on anti-monopolistic politics, uh, which the Democrats stood for throughout the 19th, early 20th century, mm. and um, you might say pro-labor politics, which they've tried, you know, sometimes strongly, sometimes not so strongly to, uh, to stand for uh, since the 1930s. Interesting. Anti-monopolistic. And we've come so far. And, and young people today probably find it hard to believe that when I was growing up, there was actually a large and powerful middle class. Today's economic divide may be greater and really more obscene than the so-called Gilded Age back in the uh, 1890s. And among the figures that stand out in your book are people like William Jennings Bryan, never elected president, ran a number of times to become Secretary of State. His message yielded great enthusiasm from a sector that Democrats today seem to have largely, if not completely, lost. These are people in low population density, Midwestern states, who have, frankly, much to be angry at. They've worked hard, played by the rules, and they're just not getting ahead. We know that Trumpism harvested all that anger. They, 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 this group largely saw uh, Hillary Clinton, the DLC, and Wall Street uh, as elitists. And I think they largely handed it to Trump on a silver platter. 
Is it realistic to think that with a more traditional, non-elitist approach, possibly populist approach, this might yet be fertile ground for Democrats? Is there any kind of connection between prairie populists like William Jennings Bryan and Bernie Sanders that the elites in New York and Washington overlook but shouldn't? Is there potential there? Well, certainly, if you look at some of the speeches that Sanders gave and some of the speeches Elizabeth Warren gave in the uh, 2020 campaign, um, there's a lot of common themes there with things that Grime was talking about in the three times he ran for president, all three times unsuccessfully, as you mentioned. Um, uh, opposition to corporate greed, uh, support for uh, working people's uh, interests uh, and institutions, too. Brian was very pro-labor union. Uh, people uh, forget that, even though his strongest support was in rural areas among small farmers. And um, But the problem, of course, is then, um, first of all, the electorate was almost entirely white. Mm. Uh, so, so, and 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 uh, and the and the only uh, block of states that Brian won uh, all three times he ran was the white was the white South, where where Democrats were rapidly disenfranchising and terrorizing black voters, something he never criticized. <laughs> um, yeah, so very obliquely once in a while. Um, and also, look, you know, we we talk about the cultural issues um, like um, abortion, like uh, gun owning. Um, uh, and and like sort of a, a general um, suspicion that a lot of uh, rural Americans have, I think, of sort of urban elites, uh, uh, fancy universities like the one I teach at in Georgetown, <laughs> and uh, you know people Hollywood and so forth. I mean, there's there's always been a very strong sort of you might say anti-cosmopolitan uh, ethos in in the United States, and in some ways Brian ran on that because the the cosmopolitans were were rich people, you know, on Wall Street who had houses in Newport, you know, uh, kind of thing. If you uh, see the HBO series of uh, the Gilded Age, uh, um, personified by, um, and uh, but now you know a lot of rural people see the elite uh, um, in populist terms um, as a liberal elite or progressive elite, which mm-hmm. is uh, uh, standing for values that they don't share. And this is primarily based on race too. I don't want to. I don't want to run the risk of and and uh, saying that much of the uh, opposition to uh, Democrats on the part of white rural people is based on race. I, I think that's part of it, but it's it's too simple uh, to say that. But I do think that Democratic Party is not in recent years, and this has pretty much been true since uh, 1960. I think is not really offered um, many people in rural areas very much. You know, uh, any programs. Uh, you know, a lot of these people having serious, serious problems. And it used to be in rural states like West Virginia and Montana, for example, um, uh, labor unions used to be very strong. United Mine Workers was a real power in, in West Virginia and the mine workers and other unions are very strong in Montana. Um, but those unions have have declined drastically in, in most cases. And so uh, people who live in those states uh, don't really there's no institution of their own, which um puts forth what you might call progressive populist uh, politics. Uh, and I think most people learn their politics from people they know, from people they trust, uh, or at least they have they want to be in agreement with those people. And if the strongest institutions are your, your evangelical church um, or maybe, you know, Fox News, um, as opposed to more uh, progressive outlets and more progressive institutions uh, close to where you live, then uh, that's going to be how you understand politics. And, mm. and so... Um, I think that's one of the things which has happened uh, in recent years. And uh, 
you know, Brian's uh, universe is not ours anymore, uh, mm -hmm. even though some of his rhetoric does resonate. Yeah, I, I, fascinating figure. And uh, if people are interested in reading more about Brian, you got a book about him. It's pretty darn good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's still, it's still very much in print, and you can buy it real cheap, uh, <laughs> second second hand. So don't don't delay. You can buy, probably got a copy for four bucks out there. So. Well, probably thrift books is a place where I get a whole bunch of my books, and they're not paying <laughs> me to say that. Um, and the the culture war. It's like it amazes me how there are things that. They don't. They're not issues so much. They're they're things that, as you say, people are familiar with. There is an institution in the low density areas, uh, the church and things like that. But there is no, you know, they're, they're, the labor unions aren't there. The jobs aren't there, and this is an interesting area as we we go forward into the uh, next round of elections and i'm reminded that an old friend of mine a unitarian minister told me long ago that fear and reassurance are the two most powerful factors in how people decide to vote republicans this year <laughs> seem to have done some research and found that it is the culture war that taps into fear and reassurance. And it seems that they found that people are afraid of trans people. And uh, they, they somehow, they've done some research to show that, uh, well, everybody hates uh, child abuse, of course. So just paint the Democrats with being child abusers. It's absurd, of course. And so here we have January 6th cheerleader, Missouri Senator Josh Hawley. He's got a whole shtick about reasserting masculinity. That's not really an electoral issue, but it connects powerfully. I don't, I'm, I'm concerned that I don't see Democrats with any sort of footing in this arena, the culture war. Your thoughts well, they have a footing. they have a footing in the wars, the culture war of conservatives is against uh, what they perceive as, as democratic issues and democratic uh, positions. Um, and, and to a large extent, they're right. Also, of course, you know, the, um, the issue which some people argue won the election for uh, Glenn Youngkin uh, in Virginia last fall yeah. was uh, really, really a, a critique of teachers. And teachers, of course, have the strongest unions in America in many ways. Um, and and they're very much a part of the Democratic Party um, almost everywhere. So so that was you know a way of attacking. It was a sort of a twofer. It was a way of a way of during the during the uh, pandemic, when when a lot of parents are already unhappy about their kids, you know, not being able to go to school, uh, having to juggle childcare together with their jobs and everything else, uh, and then um, the backlash against Black Lives Matter, which is always there's always been a backlash against any movement, you know, for racial equality yes. uh, in America, or going back to abolition and then Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement in the '60s, uh, so. So I think you know all that together. I think I think fear is a is important motivator. Also, something else which uh, we don't pay attention, enough attention to. I think the Democrats since the 1930s have been the party of government, the party of that wants the federal government to be stronger, that is dubious about states' rights, um, and that's one of the reasons the the Southern Democrats, of course, left the party because they thought the, the quite rightly that the federal government was going to threaten uh, uh, white right. supremacy uh, in their states. Um, and so that means that when the Democrats are in control of government, they better do things right, because then people, otherwise uh, a lot of voters out there who are the you know, swing voters will say, well, uh, these people 
think government can help us solve our problems. It's not solving our problems. It hasn't done the end of the pandemic. It did a bad job in Afghanistan. You know, it's not uh, getting our kids back in schools. And so it's much mm. easier always to vote against than to vote for. Yeah, that's uh, right. For sure. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the last, who was the last presidential candidate that a lot of people got really excited by? You know, it was Trump on the Republican side. And it was Obama on the Democratic side. Um, but, of course, a lot more people got excited to vote against Trump than, than yes. for him. Uh, Seven million, uh, uh, in, to be exact, the margin that Biden won by. Uh, but actually, you know, uh, Obama won a majority of white votes outside the South, uh, which surprised me when I read that. Uh, I think I mentioned the book. I should have, though. But, of course, you know, it was uh, he lost the white vote in the South by huge margins. Yeah. Uh, but I think if the party of government, then as the Democrats have been since the 1930s, the government has to deliver. Uh, and, if, and if you don't feel it's delivered for you or you feel it's delivered to the wrong people, uh, mm. then you're in trouble. Yeah, so so this, this culture war, it, it does come back to, if I hear you right, is government going to deliver for me? Is it on my side? Can I count on government? And uh, boy, that, that's a tough one. I, with, with, you know, uh, 50 votes in the Senate, it just and a lot of resistance from people like Manchin and Cinema. Uh, it's it's tough for the Democrats to do anything. But I I wonder about this this culture war that people are so afraid of, of change. And I obviously well not obviously, but I think that a lot of that comes from racism. I mean, just simple racism. And Democrats since uh, LBJ's. Big switch, big change. Support for civil and voting rights uh, have has just turned over the fairly large, apparently racist vote to the Republicans. The Republicans welcome the white supremacists. They they're loving it. In the past, as as your book details, we were able to keep both racists and moderate to progressives together we've needed those numbers and unless you have the numbers you don't win how much of a gamble do you think it is for democrats to be just handing over the racist to the other party in 2022 well i'd be careful about branding all that racism i think i think a lot of people you know uh, who vote republican and are um unhappy about black lives matter uh perhaps um might, might have um black friends uh, they work with people uh, who are black or or uh, Latino, perhaps at 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 the at, at the office, um, but but they often feel I think that you know if the Democratic Party you know is only a party for minorities, um, then what about them? Uh, and so uh, I mean, for example, I, I remember watching the Democratic convention in 2020, uh, and this was of course happening right. Uh, after the huge Black Lives Matter demonstrations, the biggest demonstrations in American history, most people argue, uh, I went on them. You know, I'm really glad they happened. But um, uh, roughly two thirds of the discussion at that convention was sort of a back Black Lives Matter. You know, it seemed like um, the Democrats were the Black Lives Matter party. Now, um, you can say opposing that is racist, or you can say. You know, people want, uh, whether race or not, want to feel that uh, that the party they vote for is doing something for them. Uh, and that's the promise, uh, which is not fulfilled because of the narrow majority, as you mentioned, of the Build Back Better um, uh, program, uh, of the PRO Act, which uh, the House passed and, the, and uh, the Senate hasn't taken up because of the filibuster. 
Mm. Uh, that would actually make it much easier to organize labor unions, which have, in almost every case would be interracial uh, labor unions. And, and so, um, uh, you know, the, the problem, and those programs are all popular among a lot of Republicans, as well as uh, independents, and of course, uh, almost all Democrats. Um, almost every poll shows that. So the, pro- the, pro- so the problem is, is, you know, getting people to understand what the Democrats actually are for. Mm. And, and, a, and a big problem, too, is is the lack of movements to do that. You know, yes. you, can't, you can't all be top down. I mean, politicians yes. are not going to, you know, are not going to just do all themselves. We have this funny illusion that I mean, the politics is all about messaging. It's all about what the DNC is doing and what the, what kind of ads they're putting out or what kind of ads Republicans are putting out. And of course, Trump's uh, speeches, um, uh, his performances really, you know, uh, help to <laughs> help to give that sense, you know, cause, cause, cause strong Trumpers just love like, like, uh, Grateful Dead fans in the past, you know, go go from speech to speech. Uh, at least they were when he was uh, president. But uh, the problem is, you need people, as I said before, you know, with their neighbors, with their coworkers, with their friends, to be talking about politics in different ways. Uh, and yeah, you need grass, more grassroots Democrats, is what I'm saying. And and uh, we don't have enough of that these days. And and the Republicans probably don't have enough either. You know, we have a devolution of the parties in many yes. ways, but nothing's really taken its place except. Social media, <laughs> which is not not if, if you've been in social media, which, of course, you have everybody listening to this has. How can you avoid it? There's no social media is not a persuasive idiom, not, not a persuasive medium. Um, you go on you go on social media to agree with your friends and to make fun of the other side. Right. Um, <laughs> right. And that's and that's fine. I mean, that's that's always happened in politics generally, too. But there's got to be some room for some place where you can actually try to persuade people who don't agree with you uh you're not going to persuade a hard hardened three percenter or you know someone who invaded right. the capital but you but there's a lot of people out there maybe eight percent of the population which really is undecided in many elections and and that's in elections these days are decided by much less than eight percent in many cases so especially in places like new hampshire so so uh, you really need to uh um find ways to get to those people and and it's really it's really you know you and me you know uh, in our local areas that are going to do that not not uh, right. you know, Joe Biden and uh, the head of DNC. I do think local, I mean, that, that's one thing that the, perhaps the so-called Tea Party learned in 2020, 2010. Yeah, yeah. you got you to keep it local. For those of you who have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, back on the radio, uh, <laughs> Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Michael Kazin, author of a new book, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And there are things we can learn in there about uh, so many different things that, that made us do it. Uh, and speaking of making us do it, you make it plain that without, a, without genuine social movements to really fire people up, both parties face major hurdles to achieve victory. Famously, on a meeting with A. Philip Randolph, head of the all-black Pullman Porters Union to address racial inequities uh, on the trains, the president... FDR famously told Randolph something like, and I don't know the exact quote, I'm with you. I want to do it. Now go out and make me do it. Yep. Elected yep. officials, of course, are all about getting reelected. They often lack courage, shall we say. <laughs> it's crucial. They don't want to stick their necks out. They, they need to see public support. Oh, is there enough support? I can do this. There are many examples of success arising from social movements on the left and the right. Labor, civil rights, anti-war, as, as well as the right wing. What concerns me, and perhaps the internet is a big part of this, that 
lots of people these days have accepted powerlessness. They don't think they can do anything. Maybe that's starting to change. What might some examples be of movements being visible enough as we move forward to give politicians the sense it may be safe to advocate for progressive legislation? Well, there have been there have been a bunch in recent years, of course. Uh, I mean, Black Lives Matter. There's been a yes. backlash to it, of course, but but still, there's been a lot more talk about policing than there has been in many years. I mean, there's always been, you know, police uh, brutality against black people, but oh, yeah. uh, uh, but but a lot, a lot of talk about that in the '60s as well. Uh, but uh, but there's been more talk about it in the last couple of years um, than there was for many years before that. And also, we forget. I mean, in recent years, you know, um, I remember 2004 when. Uh, um, John Kerry probably lost the election because he lost Ohio. And one of the reasons he lost Ohio mm. was because uh, there was a uh, anti-same-sex uh, marriage, um, uh, I think, amendment to the Constitution or exactly what it was, I forget, legally, but mm. on the ballot. And a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of people turned out, they weren't crazy about George W. Bush, but, but they were really against gay marriage. Well, 11 years later, <laughs> uh, the Supreme Court, you know, narrowly, but, but uh, right. definitively, uh, declares same-sex marriage uh, the law of the land everywhere. Um, why did that happen? Well, there's a very good book by David Cole called Engines of Liberty, I think it's called. And he talks about how, you know, surely, slowly but surely, uh, the LGBT movement worked through state courts, worked through state legislatures, more liberal ones at first, um, uh, to uh, garner support for uh, same-sex marriage, for marriage equality. And 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 also they got they they convinced people in the Democratic Party, even those who in the religious beliefs were against it, to say, well, yeah, I don't think it's a good idea, but um, but I really can't oppose it because I know people who are gay. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of people come, so so that's a good example of a movement which succeeded in one of its key um, demands. The problem with these economic demands that I'm talking about in a lot of the parts of, of uh, Build Back Better is not not really a movement uh, for um, universal pre-kindergarten, not really a movement for um, much lower prices on prescription drugs, not really a movement of, there's a movement for climate change, of course, but there's also a very powerful counter movement against uh, doing anything to uh, serious to move towards renewable uh, energy resources and, you know, huge industries, uh, Koch brothers and so forth, um, and almost the whole Republican Party and part of the Democratic Party too, like Joe Manchin. So, so, um, you know, there's, uh, I think there are movements out there, but the kind of movement that I'm, in a sense, calling for, which doesn't really exist, mm-hmm. uh, is a movement calling for what you might call economic justice uh, for working people across racial lines, across immigrant versus native-born lines. You know, there's beginning of something of a union revival. I don't know if people out there have noticed there's some polls recently. Gallup had a poll that um, says something like 68% of Americans think positively about labor unions. Now, that's abstract. It doesn't mean they know how to how to find a labor union if they want to get a union organized in their workplace. It doesn't mean uh, that they know exactly what unions will do for them. But the idea that, you know, uh, working people don't have enough power in their workplaces and they should have some representation, that's very popular. Mm. Um, and, you know, young people in various places here and there are organizing unions. Starbucks is famous. Uh, some people on Amazon, um, yes. even Google, uh, places like that. You know, mostly mostly fairly well-educated young people. But of course, you know, those young people organized the CIO in the 1930s as well. They were young workers. They weren't college educated, but they were, they were in their 20s and early 30s for the most part. So, so um, you know, that was, that's, that's a sprout of, uh, of possible movement. But, 
But the movements we've had since the 60s have been primarily movements based on identity, on, uh, on gender, mm. and on race, uh, more gender than race, actually. Uh, Black Lives Matter sort of came out of not nowhere, but uh, they weren't really, was not really a strong movement uh, uh, for, for, right. for, for, for uh, black issues since the, uh, you know, some movements, racial rights. So anyway, it's a long answer to your very good question, but I think it's, um, you see some sprouts there, but there's nothing like the galvanic movements of the 30s. Oh, that's for sure. But I, you know, in this age of, of, of internet and 24-7 and you got to grab people's attention, it has to be something new. I mean, Trump loved that. I mean, just celebrity. Doesn't matter what the heck he stands for. Just celebrity, something to, to grab the TV camera. And maybe this labor rise is actually, perhaps in the current context, something new. And I think people, you're right, are paying attention. I mean, Amazon, uh, uh, various different uh, organizations that have been anti-union, the, the attention is there. So maybe, maybe that'll help the uh, people actually running for office find some, uh, dare I say, chutzpah to, uh, to uh, support, to grab onto labor. And there's young people too. I do find it frustrating. I was once a young person. Those days are long gone. But these days, uh, the, I think a lot of the young people are like, oh, capitalism's bad. Yeah, it's just bad. We can't have capitalism. And they just, you know, it's it's very simple and it's not accurate. But I, you're, you know, back to the theme of the book, moral capitalism. And what uh, actually Dick Gephardt said uh, in 1988, capitalism with a conscience. I wonder how much that can actually connect with the people we need to connect with. Do they have, dare I say, hope that there can be a different kind of capitalism rather than this rapacious, monopolistic capitalism? I mean, it's had appeal before. What about now, do you think? Well, as you said, um, Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist and, and Republican, because <laughs> yes. uh, uh, 19th century Republican, yeah. um, made the famous statement, power concedes nothing without a demand. Yes. It never has and it never will. Yes. So, um, you know, the only... Um, uh, big changes that happen in American American uh, history have happened uh, when there's conjunction of social movements, upsurge from the bottom, um, uh, compelling politicians to make changes, and when they find some reception among politicians mm -hmm. uh, to make those changes. It happened during the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, then the Republican Party was the party. It happened to its degree, as I as I write about, uh, during the, Wil the the first Wilson administration, uh, before the the war became the only issue that really mattered. World War One, that is the war we're both fascinated by, um, and, uh, and of course it happened in the 1930s and 40s, uh, and it happens again in the 1960s. Um, but if if you don't have those two elements uh, working together, that uh, that interaction between the movement um, and politicians, uh, then you have what we have now, and we've had for a long time, which is um, a kind of a slow drift, at least uh, until the Great Recession, towards what some people call neoliberalism, that is, yeah. uh, you know, more more sort of a free market, uh, anti-union um, uh, economic policies. Uh, and uh, or you just have, you know, a lot of uh, vicious battles about about language, about uh, about uh, cultural issues, which matter to some people, but probably not to the majority of people. I mean, most people, I think, would be 
uh, on abortion, for example, would be fine. Would be fine with the status quo, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether whether people on either side like it very much or not. Uh, but that's not going to happen because, again, the pro-life movement is much more powerful and uh, and better and smarter politically than the pro-choice movement, unfortunately. Um, at least it has been in recent years. Yeah. Um, and of course, they they uh, uh, the Republicans have made that an issue. Um, uh, in a way that Democrats never have, and of course it's, it's an issue because because they want to change things. Whereas if you support the status quo, as most Democrats have, that's that's not is easy to mobilize people around that. Yeah, uh, true. But at least people are are safe. They're not motivated by anti-gay marriage and and things like that. That there was and now people are like, yeah, okay, that's, who cares? You know, they have other things they want to focus on. It doesn't grab the attention. It has to be new and exciting. And obviously Trump was a master at that. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm pleased that our guest today is uh, returning guest, Michael Kazin, new book, What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And there is certainly a lot to learn there. One of the things I actually remember from college, in 1949, not I wasn't in college then. Uh, your book points out Arthur Schlesinger wrote an important book called The Vital Center. I don't know how many people have heard of that now. It seems to me that really that was where Eisenhower was domestically. I mean, not not foreign policy, but domestically. That it's pretty much where Bernie Sanders has been—a mix of capitalism and social programs where where that can happen. Today, of course, the instant people think of Bernie, oh, he's far left. Is there evidence that Democrats might choose to articulate that vision of of FDR, capitalism tethered to the common good, moral capitalism? What was that vital center that hardly anybody knows about that's now seen as the far left? Has Has the center moved inexorably to the right? What about that vital center? Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Schlesinger's book. He was one of the uh, founders of America's Democratic Action, a, a group that, if, if it's still around, it's uh, yeah. probably moribund. I, I, I interned for them back in 1965 oh, uh, did you? Huh. Uh, when, when, when I was in high school, when the Democrats were passing every bill they, they wanted to pass because yeah. <laughs> uh, they had these huge majorities in the, in the House and Senate. But yeah. when Johnson was president. But, but um, you know, when you talk about the vital center, he was he – was, um, Referring, you know, uh, remember the Cold War was on. Uh, it had just started, arguably two, three years before, and and so um, he was very anti-communist, as 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 ADA was very anti-communist. Um, at the same time, he did support what was basically Harry Truman's politics at the time, which is, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, a, a more sort of continuing the New Deal, um, but uh, doing it sort of around the edges, supporting uh, national health insurance, um, and um, you know, more spending on on public works and that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the Cold War was essential to that politics. And, you know, what's what's in some ways, I think, ironic, perhaps, is that, you know, World War II and the Cold War um, made it, I think, probably easier for for people who support, you know, what I call moral capitalism or what you might call in European terms social democracy mm-hmm. to um, uh, to make gains and to gain popularity uh, because, People, you know, trusted the federal government to, to take care of them, to protect them against uh, first against uh, the uh, uh, the fascists and the the Axis of powers during World War II, and then uh, during the Cold War against the Soviet Union and its allies. So, 
So it's an unfortunate truth, but war, <laughs> war, um, as Randolph Bourne, uh, the great anti-war uh, um, activist in World War One, said, war is the health of the state. Mm. And it's not just the health of the state in terms of defense expenditures. It's also usually the health of the state in terms of, in terms of uh, uh, promoting support for, for social programs, which help a lot of people. And uh, uh, that's not, you know, for someone like me who's who's very much anti-war, uh, that's not something I'm pleased by. But it's just historical fact, I'm I'm afraid. Um, and uh, so, you know, creating the, recreating the vital center. Uh, today is 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 much more difficult, uh, mm. in part because of the you know the the um, the partisanship is so extreme on almost every issue. Uh, the war in, in Ukraine now has produced a moment, at least, of uh, mm. bipartisan unity around helping the Ukrainians, but that's not going to last <laughs> um, because we have an election coming up, and there's no way that uh, Republicans are going to be praising Joe Biden um, um, in October. Not not even praising him now. So. So I think, um, you know, that that was an interesting moment, but it's a moment that was created, I think, by the context of the Cold, of the, of Cold War following so soon after World War II. That's very interesting. I had never thought about that, how war, being at war and saying, yes, the government is protecting me from these bad guys, uh, gives, them, gives the politicians and the public uh, a space to, to say, yeah, the government is on my side. It can do things yeah. for me. Fascinating. Yeah. There's a very good book about the um, um, one of the best books about the New Deal and World War II and U.S. history into the Cold War too. It's called Fear Itself by a great Columbia historian and social scientist Ari Katzenelson, and he he talks about you know how important and you mentioned this earlier how important fear yeah. was to mobilizing support for uh, the New Deal because it's fear of poverty and insecurity, uh, and then of course uh, support for Various wartime measures like the VA, uh, like the like the GI Bill, and the VA uh, during World War II and after World War II, and then of course uh, um, you know the various uh, actions in the uh, in the forties and fifties. People forget, for example, even under Eisenhower, that the national highway system was uh, built, you know, with federal dollars, uh, a lot of federal dollars, all across mm-hmm. all these wonderful interesting highways we have. It was part of a of a national defense. Uh, right. appropriation because the idea was if war comes to the Soviet Union, um, the planes, our planes might have to might have to land on highways and our and our tanks might have yes. to hide under overpasses. So that's why uh, even very conservative uh, uh, Congress people voted for the National Highway Act because uh, they wanted to make sure that they would not be accused by their opponents of uh, being opposed to uh, protecting uh, our troops and our uh, and our our uh, military hardware uh, in the case of a war. Yeah, interesting, putting it in the terms of defense. I, I remember uh, oh, back, I'm not sure if it was Eisenhower or, or Kennedy, that educating people, math and science, that's yep. under defense, keeping us strong. I sure wish we could do that again. The, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, There's a lot of major constituencies in you know in a, a country of 330 million people uh tying that all together whoa seems kind of impossible i mean there were as as your book points out you know various different uh interest groups powerful uh groups that had you know there was the uh, the urban machine the the midwest the farmers uh the labor unions now it's this this more people and 
quite frankly, fewer uh, white people. That that we, you know, that was pretty much it. That was who, uh, you know, everything from uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan to uh, Woodrow Wilson. They were certainly, by today's context, uh, accepting of, of white supremacy, um, and certainly Trump's wall was to keep brown skin refugees out, not for others. But it does seem that the right these days is white supremacist for the most part, determined at their core to make real the dream of white Protestant male rule. You cite in your book the exceptional power of local 226 in the Nevada Nevada, I guess it is, elections yeah, of 2018 and 2020. The, their organization, their machine, brought the Democrats victory. Historically, communities of color have voted overwhelmingly Democratic. And, and one might think that greatly increasing numbers of Latinx Americans would be an obvious strength for Democrats as we're going forward. I get the sense that the trend among this Democratic is actually rightward, largely the uh, the, the culture wars. Are Democrats ta- taking a big risk? Are they taking the Latinx uh, people for granted? How big is the danger there? And might the example of Local 226 in Nevada perhaps offer a blueprint or at least an important lesson toward winning elections. Tell us about that, please. Well, certainly. I mean, Local 226 is is the uh, the local that uh, represents most of the casino workers, most right. of the restaurant workers, most of the uh, hotel maids, um, service workers uh, in in Las Vegas, and a lot of them in Reno as well. The two real centers of uh, of, uh, of of tourism, uh, of course, and uh, in, in Nevada, and. Uh, and those are the two you know, urban areas too. That's pretty much there's only two cities in Nevada really that of any size, Reno right. and Vegas. Um, and, and it's an amazing union because um, it was um, formed, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, it's mostly Latino, but actually people speak uh, I forget how many languages. I've got it in the book uh, 30, 40 different languages. There are there are people from Arab countries, uh, people from African countries as well, and of course, native-born Americans as well. And um, you know, they really uh, do what unions just do in the past, which is they they give uh, workers not just education uh, about what's going on, but but they have uh, their own clinics uh, with the mine workers in, the, in West Virginia used to have their own clinics, too. Um, and uh, they also uh, believe that they they, they, they they teach people in the union that uh, that politics really matters. Uh uh, because uh, if you put people who are against unions in power, they're going to um, try to break the unions, which means their wages and will go down and their job security uh, will go down. And, and this, of course, is especially uh, powerful with a pandemic where Vegas and Reno basically shut down for mm-hmm. a, while, mm-hmm. a lot of people. But now, now now they're pretty much back, whether they should be or not with a pandemic. Uh, that's up to folks <laughs> to decide to go there. But but but. Uh, and also, they have something that's amazing. They actually, one of their contracts did Local 226, a provision which um, allows um, a certain number of, of workers in the union to take off, uh, two, I think it's two weeks before election time, to canvass for candidates wow. uh, at, at pay, <laughs> at full pay, um, which shows, you know, because they, because, you know, without the workers in the union, these casinos can't operate. So they sort of had to give in to something like that. And Harry Reid, uh, the late, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Senate Majority Leader from Nevada, which was has been a swing state for a long time, uh, he made this. He 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 he. Uh, what's the right word? He uh, 
uh, made the marriage go between Local 226 and Democratic Party, mm. uh, which had been sort of, the Democratic Party was pretty conservative before Reid, and he, he both made it a, a more liberal party and also connected uh, the union uh, with the party. Um, and so if that union uh, wasn't as strong as it was, didn't have so many members, the, the uh, Democrats would probably never win in Nevada. Uh, they win in Nevada both in presidential elections and most uh, state elections in the last few years as well because they have that strong institution. And it's the same kind of institution which really helped make Democrats the majority party in the U.S. in the 30s and 40s and 50s, um, and especially winning over states that had been Republican before, like Michigan, Ohio, these Midwestern states uh, generally. Um, so, you know, the problem with the Democrats now, too, is, you know, I, uh, I, mean, I wish they would follow my advice, but so <laughs> about stress, stressing economic issues, progressive populist issues. The problem is, uh, it's a broad party. It's a broad church, as they say in Britain. And, uh, um, you know, it's got people like me who teach at fancy universities and make very good incomes and live in very blue areas like Washington, D.C., where Trump got 5% of the vote last time. <laughs> uh, 1% more than he did in 2020, 2016, only got 4% in 2016. Uh, uh, probably some of his appointees, you know, were, were living in D.C. to vote for him. But, but um, uh, and it's got, you know, uh, poor black people in the South and elsewhere. It's got a lot of most uh, Latinos and Latinas um, still vote uh, Democratic, um, but you know a lot who live in the, on the border in, in in Southern Florida do not, uh, for reasons I can talk about. Uh, and of course, it's got it's got uh, um, a lot of middle class suburbanites now who don't like uh, who are on the other side of the cultural issues from conservative evangelicals. So how you make all those groups happy mm. uh, and unify them uh, is not easy. To say on the positive side, real um, people forget all the, you know, the the frustration, anxiety about Democrats not getting things done. Right. Every one of the Build Back Better uh, programs, uh, plus the pro union, pro act, it's called, um, pretty much, and the voting rights reforms as well, passed the House of Representatives, as you know, uh, narrowly, but they only have a narrow majority, about nine votes, 10 votes in the House of Representatives. Almost every Democrat, with one or two exceptions, voted for everything on the wish list of, of Biden's wish list. The problem, of course, is the Senate, where, yeah. where you know, uh, Joe Manchin or Kristen Sinema or both of them, you know, can decide either we're not going to vote mm -hmm. for them or we're not going to agree to break the filibuster. So um, the problem is with narrow majorities, you usually don't hardly ever can achieve, you know, yeah. big things. And that's the problem right now. Well, as, as you point out so clearly that it, you have to have the movements there to make it happen. My sense is that there is a lot of support for Build Back Better and the pro bill. Uh, but is it, is, are the Democrats working that? You know, are they? Yeah, I think you're right. People don't know about it. But again, <laughs> the, problem, the problem is there's no movement. There's no Build Back Better movement. There's no, you know, there's not 200,000 people on the mall <laughs> saying, pass Build Back Better, you know. Um, there's a bunch of truckers outside the yeah. Beltway, you know, um, who, who who think they're being oppressed by vaccine mandates, which usually don't exist anymore anyway. Um, but that's not a big movement. I'm just saying, you know, and this is true for Obamacare, too, to be honest with you. Obama had much bigger majorities in the House and Senate than Biden does. Mm. But they couldn't get the public option through because they didn't have 60 votes. Um, and uh, if, if it had been through, it would have been a much if the public option had gone through, it would have been a much more transformative bill i think it's still a great thing to have it but yeah but it's but it's um and so you know again i it's it's kind of kind of become my mantra it's a mantra of most activists but but 
if you don't have uh, people, large numbers in intelligent ways pushing politicians, politicians will be pushed from the other side by those who don't like it, uh, who are much more powerful than social movements uh, if the movements don't exist. And, and I... There, there, there was the uh, the uh, uh, Occupy Wall Street movement, which I think actually had some success because people understand 99 and 1%. It, nothing happens overnight. I know we're Americans and we think we want an instant solution now, darn it. But it doesn't happen that way. But I wonder if, I, I don't know if, is there other movements happening? People, I really think, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Republicans or conservatives have said, Oh, you know, no, they don't want government programs, but don't touch, uh, don't uh, touch my Medicare and Social Security. They don't even know it's a government program. Is there, where's there the consciousness for this? I think it's really difficult. I've after losing elections, I've been to a lot of local Democratic things, and and people say, oh, we just have to go out there and educate people. I don't think that's a good idea. I think we have to listen to people. You gotta, if people, I've heard it said that, you know, if people think as a politician you're listening to them, you're very bright. You really got it on the ball just for listening to them. What about this listening? And is there any kind of bubbling up for something as I would think popular as? creating a whole bunch of jobs, you know, saving the environment, uh, building new uh, transportation systems, fixing our bridges and stuff. W where is that? Well, of course, there is the infrastructure bill which passed, and a lot of Republicans who didn't vote for it now are touting what it's doing for their communities. Yeah. Um, but uh, look, I mean, obviously, um, being good at politics, and you in politics, you know uh, what, that, what that means. You have to listen to people, but you also have to convince them, you know, True. change their minds if you can. Um, my son's been a Democratic Party operative for since the Obama campaign, since he was in college in 2008. And uh, uh, and now, like last election, he was making ads. Uh, he worked for a group called American Bridge, uh, um, a super PAC. Um, he was making ads um, in Virginia, uh, which were uh, starring uh, usually women uh, who ran small businesses or sometimes who worked for uh -huh. big businesses and talked about their families and talked about um, all the good things that uh, that democratic programs could do for them. Um, but they were ads, you know, they were not uh, for the most part people on the ground who most people on the ground were talking right. about uh, good, good, <laughs> this guy, Glenn Youngkin is going to be like Trump, you know, but of course he didn't seem like Trump. And, uh, uh, he's much slicker than Trump. He wasn't. He wasn't. You know, screaming about denouncing immigrants and so forth. So, so um, and he had and he had a black person and a uh, Latina uh, on his ticket. This Republican. So, uh, so calling him racist was not going to work. Mm. Um, so I think uh, again, uh, I, I wrote a um, a op ed for my magazine, uh, Dissent, Dissent, a while yes. back, uh, saying that in some ways. You know, be, just throwing up the possibility of 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 of, of uh, Democrats having local clubs again, like they used to actually. Uh -huh. in some yes. Now there are some places to have local clubs. There's probably there's probably different towns in in New Hampshire. There are local Democratic headquarters, but they usually only come alive at election time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I, I float the possibility. Well, maybe a good idea to have a place that, like the old urban clubs that Tammany Hall had, actually. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You can go, you can hang out, you can hear a debate, get something to drink. You know, um, sort of a, a social center uh, of sorts, uh, but a social center for people who obviously uh, have to show that they they're not just there to get a, a free beer or something. They're there to uh, 
because they because they've done something for the party, they want to do something for the party um, for for its candidates. Maybe they have debates about who should be nominated for state legislature as well as Congress. Um, I thought about this because I I uh, had a uh, some drinks uh, a while back uh, with uh, Ed Miliband in who was the head of the Labor Party and and was their candidate for prime minister. Didn't win. Uh, uh, several years ago, and, and he, he asked me, why don't Democrats have what the Labor Party in uh-huh. Britain has? Uh-huh. All these local parties, all local clubs. And I didn't have an answer for him. Um, I hadn't, wasn't working on this book yet. So, I mean, there's all kinds of things people should try, but, yeah. but you know, the parties have, yeah, people care about politics in this country, but they don't, but they don't care about parties per se. Right. And maybe, they, maybe they won't, but, but uh, you know, if you, if you ask most people out there who are not people like you and me, what do the Democrats stand for? I'm not sure they'd give you a good answer. Uh, what do Republicans stand for? They probably say whatever Trump, whatever Donald Trump stands for. Right. Um, so it's, I mean, that that's a problem more for Democrats, I'd say, because Republicans will be able to have these resentments that they run on. The Republicans don't have a program of what they want to do with the government. They just have a program right now of what they don't want uh, the Democrats to be able to do. Um, but Democrats want positive things to happen, want the government to be used in positive ways. And for that, you've got to, you know, have more organization. Yes, you do. And if you don't hoist something up the flagpole for people to see, they're not going to salute. That's just, you know. It, <laughs> and, you know, you talk about having something positive, you know, what you're for. A lot of mainstream Democratic National uh, Committee people, the old DLC people, too, are very afraid of somebody like uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Is she a traditional Democrat with the potential to bring more victories across the country? Do you think should the DNC be well, afraid I mean, of her? I, 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 I was associated with a magazine for for many years, Dissent, and I still am, uh, yes. which you know calls itself a socialist magazine. But by that, they meant that we meant social democratic. That is, you know, um, more like Denmark, not at all like uh, right. North Korea or, <laughs> or, right. or, 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 or Cuba. But um, you know, uh, you know, anti-tyrannical. Uh, Social democracy, um, but the problem is, you know, socialism is a, you know, for young uh, people it's a more positive word, but for most Americans it's not, right. and and they think it's easy to say, oh, you want Venezuela, do you want Cuba, right. um, and uh, you know, she's a charismatic figure, yes. um, but uh, uh, you know, I like to see, I mean, I, I, if she were in, you know, Missouri or Ohio, well, you know, she she would have to. She'd have to have a different politics. I mean, yes. that's the problem. You know, you can't, you know, it's um, the reason Biden won the nomination is because he was he was uh, OK um, with uh, every part of the party, uh, though nobody. Loved uh. him. <laughs> um, and that's unfortunately what happens with them with a mass party. Now, I think the party has moved to the left some and at least until last summer, um, that that move was you know, was generally popular because um, Biden's popularity rating was you know a little higher than had than the than the percentage of the popular vote he won. Um, but and I think I think that uh, Democrats will have to stay with that general politics. But again, uh, they won't be able to uh, take the uh, uh, the agenda of Casi Cortez uh, right. uh, and say this is what we're running on entirely because because that's uh, not you're not going to win that way um, yeah. in in much of the country. Um, and and so, I mean, it's a big tent. It's got to be a big tent. If it's not a big tent, it's not going to win election. At the same time, uh, you have to uh, be able to make arguments for, I think, progressive 
as you say, populist economic programs like the ones that are already popular. I mean, you yes. know, I think I mentioned before, every single program in the Build Back Better is popular in the polls. The problem yes. is people don't know it. People don't know about it. People don't know. You know, you ask people in polls, what's Build Back Better? 10% have some idea. Wow. 10%. So, you know, in the, old, in, in the 19th century, you know, people used to go see uh, people, uh, politicians speak. It was entertainment. They didn't have anything else. No. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's true for Donald Trump, unfortunately. He's entertaining. He's, 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 he's horrible, but he's entertaining. Well, that's the thing. And people want that. You know, the celebrity, you know, for issues, what? Issues. No, they want celebrity. Somebody they can, as they say, have a beer with. I don't know. Well, I wonder about just one quick last question. Moral capitalism. Do you think I think Biden does fit in with that? And do you think this, the sense of moral capitalism that is sort of the string that ties your book uh, together? And there's a lot of history there. Um, d does that have appeal? I think it does. I mean, you know, you don't have to use the term, but I think right. again. I mean, the point of the book is that when Democrats have uh, stood for um, you know economic uh, relief and. Uh, uh, and justice, you can call it that, for the large majority of the population, um, then they have done well. In, and when they've gotten away from that, uh, they have not done well. And there's uh, lots of exceptions, of course, wars, <laughs> the biggest exception, uh, when the economics is not the main issue. But at the same time, um, you know, when they've allowed themselves to be divided by the divisions they've always had within them, mm. uh, they've had more trouble. And also, you know, democracy with a small d should mean economic democracy. It Absolutely. Should mean, it should mean people being able to have secure, you know, um, uh, decent lives, not to be rich, not to, you know, have all the money they want to, to go on vacations wherever they want to, but not to have to worry about, you know, whether they have a roof over their heads, have health care when they get sick, have enough food on the table, have a job that's not a just drudgery all the time, get a decent yes. education. Every American pretty much likes all that, but Democrats have to make it clear that their programs are going to, um, Make it help happen. Get, get, get closer there anyway. Yeah. There is a lot to learn. Fascinating discussion. We could do another hour at least. Uh, our guest on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive today has been uh, Michael Kazin. Check out his books. The new book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Will we ever learn from history? I suppose it could happen. Thank you so much for being with us. Great flag. Good, good to talk to you again, always. Was a young girl with a 